Hi, and welcome to episode 137 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and today I'm bringing you part two of a two-part episode where I speak with leading portrait painter Paul Newton. If you haven't heard it yet, Paul spoke with me in the last episode about how he became an artist and the stories behind several of his stunning portraits. He's been a 15-time Archibald finalist, has six works in the National Portrait Gallery and has painted dozens of commissions of notable people, from prime ministers to popes to Hollywood stars. In this episode, we talk more about the creation of his paintings and Paul reveals the sorts of things which you can only dream of hearing from such an experienced painter. Amongst other things, we talk a lot about colour, he shares the pitfalls to watch out for when using photographic references, and he gives an interesting approach on how to see work with fresh eyes, something crucial for portraitists painting in a realistic style. He's also in the process of building an incredible studio on his property in the northwest of Sydney, where he's planning to conduct painting workshops. And I can tell you now, those places will be in high demand, because as you'll see in this episode, he's extremely generous with his knowledge. Although there are some snippets on Instagram and Facebook already, I'll be publishing a longer video of Paul on the YouTube channel after I get back from my break, including footage not included in these interviews. By the way, there are also quite a few other videos in the editing suite as well, which are based on interviews I've done over the last year, and they'll also be coming up on the channel in 2023. We start this episode talking about flesh tones, and I couldn't believe my luck when Paul offered to show me the colours on one of his palettes and how he uses them. On this occasion, a Caucasian complexion. Anyone who has grappled with flesh tones will know what a minefield it is. Warming up and cooling off colours, learning how each colour behaves when mixed, and even how a colour differs between brands. So much is trial and error and takes years of practice. I've included an image of the palette he talks about on the website talkingwithpainters.com, and there's a link in the show notes to take you directly there if you happen to be listening on a podcast app, but you don't really need to see the palette in order to understand what he's talking about in this episode. You'll also see there's a self-portrait on the website, which Paul also talks about in detail about halfway through the interview. So here is part two of my conversation with Paul Newton. So what we're looking at is one of the, they're called disposable palettes, aren't they? You know, where you rip them off the pad, which which are fantastic because then you don't have to sort of clean a palette and and you can actually, it's an added benefit actually, isn't it, that you can keep it afterwards? Yes, you can keep visual notes. So when you use a palette, obviously at the end of the exercise, you will scrape it off and start with a fresh palette uh, the next time around. But in this case, with a disposable palette, and I've got to be honest, the reason I use them is I'm just lazy. And the thought of one extra job, i.e. cleaning the palette, is something I can do without. So... <laughs> The, it's bad I, enough cleaning brushes. That's it. We, and as you can see, I don't do a very good job of that either. <laughs> um, so do you want me to talk about the colours yes, I'm using? Please. Okay, so I've got wow. this is just an example. It's a bit messy, but again, that's fairly fairly typical. Uh, when we're talking about flesh tones and and perhaps just painting in general, I like to work with as fewer colours as I can get away with, but not too few. I mean, you need enough to to say what you need to say. With flesh tones, if you think about it, if you're talking about someone with a Caucasian complexion, normally it's a warm colour, like a, a version of red, a version of yellow, white to kind of create a milky effect with those two, red and yellow, and then a neutraliser to tone down the uh, strength of that colour so it doesn't look, look, look orange, rather it looks like a flesh tone. Mm. In, in a very general sense, that's kind of the, the starting point. And so... For a flesh tone, then you say, okay, what kind of reds would you use? I tend to use two main reds. One is cadmium red light, this one here, and alizarin crimson, the one down on my down here, as the reds. And alizarin is a cooler red, a bluer red, and the cadmium red is is warmer, more orangey uh, red. 
And so for different parts of the face, for example, uh, a nose, particularly of someone who's older, might tend to be a bit cooler. The red might be a cooler red. So alizarin is more effective for that. The cheeks tend to be, particularly for a young child, where they're very rosy. And I mean, you would say rosy, but they're actually more of a, an orangey red. So that's where this color comes in. And then on the other side of the equation then are the yellows. And yellow ochre, these are two different yellow ochres, cadmium yellow, which I also use to kind of brighten up the yellow if, if need be. Mm. And this is a color which I tend to use a bit uh, in flesh tones. It's called a Naples yellow, and it's a particular brand. It's um, it's Holbein, Holbein brand Naples yellow. And it's one that I just chanced upon years ago, and it it's a lovely kind of juicy, almost a cadmium-esque version of that very traditional color which traditionally was more of an earth color, not quite as uh, vibrant or, or, you know, citrusy as, as this one is. And because it's kind of already mixed with white in it as, as it comes, it's, it's helpful to get a particularly intense yellow flesh tone uh, when required. And then white. And what I use as a neutralizer, which is the all-important color really, is black. And you think, well, why black? Isn't that going to make it dirty? Why not use, you know, umber or brown of some sort or blue or green? And I sometimes use those. I mean, th- these are just rules of thumb and I don't ever stick to any of these things that I'm saying here. So mm. it's like a cook, you know, they, they, eventually they just kind of take a pinch of this and a pinch of that. But the reason I use black as a neutralizer is that it's very clean and it doesn't have any color bias in and of itself. Like this is ivory black. It doesn't change the complexion. It doesn't make the color look muddy when you mix it with uh, the reds and the yellows. So it maintains a clean, fresh flesh tone. And the more black you add along with the white, if you think about it, when you're adding black and white, that's gray. Mm. It tends to gray off and cool down the color. So particularly if it's an area where you don't want it to look murky, that's a great way of cooling off a color, a flesh tone color. Another way, particularly in the highlights, is to use uh, viridian because viridian's a, a beautiful, rich green. But in the darker areas, it can make the color look a bit muddy, a bit kind of murky. But in a very light flesh tone, it, it's it's a really beautiful color. And I think Sargent, another great artist from the past, um, would have used viridian. Oh, that's really interesting. And um, what about in the shadows? Like, what will you, do you use earth colours? Yeah, I, I mean, I tend to use um, a reasonable number of earth colours generally. Like this one over here is Venetian red. Um, Venetian red is, well, as you can see, in and of itself is a quite, almost a terracotta, darker, earthy, um, but still relatively vibrant, warm red really it it is red but a very earthy red Mm. but when you mix it with a bit of white it takes on this this different character a very pink almost bluey pink Mm. color and it's interesting each color that you use from the tube will have its own reaction to white and black or any other color that you care to mix with it and and sometimes you'll get a very different effect when you use the color transparently compared with the same color used as a mixture, say, with white. Yeah. So burnt sienna is a great colour for glazing and for doing underpainting. It's, it's so rich and, and colourful as an earth colour. But you mix it with white and you get a very, almost an orange, um, milky orange colour. Mm. Um, it just reacts so differently under different circumstances. And you can take advantage of those qualities of the paint when you're painting. So if, if I'm glazing an area, for instance, I'll use a, a colour which is um, uh, consistent with glazing. You know, some colours are too opaque and, and you, you dilute them and they don't really work as a, as a glazing colour. But burnt sienna and ultramarine blue are colours that are perfect for that approach. Yeah, and would that be mainly in the shadows that you would be doing glazing? Yeah, or, uh, yes, more often than not because the paint tends to be thinner in the shadows. The, the general rule of thumb is to paint thinner in the shadows and then thicker, heavier paint in the the lit areas. So, for example, when I painted Hugh and Deb for the Archibald, what they're, they're wearing essentially black or, or close to black outfits. So, And I tend not to use – I use black as a neutralising colour, 
but I never use it as an actual colour in the painting. So to mimic black or the effect of black, I would use the ultramarine and burnt sienna, which is something that Robert Hannaford put me on to. Oh, okay. Who is the master of of, Uh, uh, painting. He certainly is. Yes, he's incredible. Yeah. So, But what's beautiful about that combination is that you can – you can balance um, your black and make it warmer or cooler depending on which colour predominates. Mm. So in a, in a thin glazed area, um, on a dark uh, piece of clothing, for example, maybe a sleeve or trousers or a jacket, whatever it might be, the very thinnest, darkest areas tend to be warm. So I would put a little more of the burnt sienna in that mix uh, but they need the blue because it's it's the ultramarine blue to balance it and also to darken it. So it's it's a combination of the two. And then as it gets lighter, um, I would tend to add just a tincture of white and kind of grading that up to an area which captures the most light, effectively a highlight on a dark area of, a, of the clothing. And what then happens is you get this lovely juxtaposition of the glazed area or not it's not actually glazed just thinner paint which is transparent somewhat transparent and the area where you've mixed white which is a bit more opaque and that combination of the opaque and transparent is really uh, I, I think really a beautiful combination and it really shows up in a tangible way because of the different texture and thickness of paint that variation between the shadow and lit side of the form in the case of a black object like clothing. Mm. So I used that when I was painting Hugh and Deb's portrait. Uh, so you, that's oh, a good that's example so of that. interesting. Well, when talking about highlights, mm. often you feel like when we're talking about flesh in the face, yeah. you, feel, you know, students are rushing to do the highlight at the end, you know, to make yeah. it sort of come to life. Yeah. But what do you think... Um, because basically what we all want, well, we don't all want this, but I do, you want the face to come to life. You yeah. want it to look alive. Yeah. Is it in the highlights that that is going to happen? What What is it that it's is in, necessary? I think it's the, the life in a painting generally, and in particular a face, a head, is in the mid-tones. That's where it, it, it lives. It lives in the mid-tones. And the highlights are just a highlight to what you're saying in the mid-tones which is one of the reasons why photography is so dangerous to use as a reference source if you're not aware of the dangers of of photography, the lies that photos tell you. They're a great tool, but if you let them master the process, they'll lead you down the garden path. Uh, Why? Because they'll show a highlight when it shouldn't be there. Yeah, they'll burn out the colours in a way that isn't consistent with how the person would have looked from life. Uh, They'll exaggerate the colours. The colours tend to be more monochromatic, just a general orange I'm thinking, I guess, more of in days gone by where you would get photo prints from the local chemist. Digital photography is a different um, a different beast and, and is, in fact, more subtle in terms of capturing those colour variations. So perhaps it's not a great example. But when I was learning to paint, that was the paradigm that I was dealing with. And I became very aware of the, the shortcomings of photos. But even still, I would say be aware of the lies that photos will tell you. But working from life, and if you're focusing on what the person really looks like from life, uh, which you only attain by spending a lot of time painting from the life model. And as you say, because you've had so much experience from life, you can tell when the camera's lying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I would automatically, if I'm looking at a photo, I would just subconsciously I dispense with things that the photo's showing, like the exaggeration of the size of things. For example, if you're photographing someone and you're relatively close to them, the um, the depth of field issue is such that the what's what's closer to you as the viewer, the photographer, because the gap between how can I put this, the, the distance between your nose and the back of your head is a large proportion of the distance between you and the photographer. Yeah. However, if you were photographing a distant mountain the distance between the tree on the front of the mountain and something on the back is minimal. Yes. The classic example is a locomotive, a train. If you're looking at a train on a, on the mountain doing a, you know, coming around the mountain, the caboose on the back looks just the same size as the locomotive in front because you're so far away from it. 
However, if you're taking a photograph of a train up close, the locomotive is gargantuan and the tr- and the carriage at the very back kind of is Oh, a that's distant- a good example yeah. to, to illustrate that. Yeah, I mean, that's a extreme example, but the same principle applies when you're painting a face. The nose is a little bit closer to you. So if you step back when you're photographing or even working from life, it tends to reduce that exaggeration of the of the forms closer to you being enlarged and the forms being further back being shrunk. Yes. So, but if you're looking at a photograph, you need to compensate for that. So if, if, you, if I'm sitting here and I'm the subject of a photo you're taking of me, my hands, which will be significantly closer to you than my head, will probably be exaggerated in size. And so you need to compensate yeah, for that. Right. Oh, so you just have to sort of. Make it up yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I, when I'm using photos, which I I you know quite happily admit to using a lot in in my work, I only use them as a as a foundation, and I I I would then take pieces from lots of different photos of whoever the subject might be, compose them together, and I use a model there with me, you know, friend or family member, to marry things up and get the heights and the proportions right, mm. and and also work with the person I'm painting from life with a a small study and then combining all of those things, I'll come up with a painting, which may be very different to the reference photos, but I'm still relying on the reference photos to build a foundation for this structure I'm trying to create. Yes, definitely. It's also interesting with your work though, that you don't ever take it to the extreme where you've sort of blended it to the point where it looks like a photo. So there must be a point where you are, you probably could do that if you wanted to do it. Yeah. But you, there's a point where you stop. So yeah. how do you how do you feel satisfied? When do you feel satisfied? Or is it just a feeling you get when you get to that point? It is a feeling, but it comes it's informed by years of taking it too far. <laughs> and you think bugger I should have And not being happy. Yeah. 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 And you and you know you've when you've done that and you can't retrieve it. It's not like a you know, a layer in Photoshop that you can go back to. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. irretrievable. You do get a feel for what uh, for when a painting needs needs to stop, and I think in many ways that's where the that's where the real creative the art comes in, knowing when to stop. And and you know, when when you paint something, one of the advantages of stepping back a lot from your work is that you don't get up close, and you don't or spend much time up close, mm. and you don't get distracted and obsessed by things that look unresolved up close because from a distance they either don't matter they look sufficiently resolved or in the in the grand scheme of things it actually looks better if they are unresolved no i know what you mean and by the way i should point out i it's not that i don't i do like hyperrealism by the way yeah yeah oh yeah you know, <laughs> i do indeed. like it but it's not what you do no, so I, no. I, it's sort of a different thing yeah and I've got friends who, who paint in that way and I, and I love their work. I'm actually, you know, blown away by the patience and studious attention to detail it must take to achieve that result. Yeah, and, yeah. But like if I go into an art gallery, some museum somewhere in New York or wherever, you know, if I have the, the opportunity to do that, I'm drawn to work like the work of Whistler and Sargent and um, Franz Hulls and... Those guys who who painted, or not just guys, um, Cecilia Beau, who paint in a in a very loose, somewhat impressionist manner, and Velasquez was probably the greatest of all of those, you know, mm. hundreds of years earlier. Oh, so true. I remember seeing the um, Pope Innocent Ten oh. in the Doria Pamphili. Oh, yeah. <gasps> Because it's in a little alcove yeah. by itself. Yeah, yeah. Along with that, is it Benini sculpture? Yes, Benini sculpture. Of the same guy. And I didn't know it was there. Yeah. And I turned this corner and I think, oh, actually, no, my husband actually told me. He said, oh, you know, there's, go and have a look in that alcove. I said, oh, my God. It's an and absolute it's, masterpiece. It's lit unbelievably. And he feels, you feel daylight. like he's about to – oh, it's a daylight. Yeah, it's got I a, didn't notice there's, that. When I was there on a couple of occasions, there's a – there's a, a, a skylight and it's muted with fabric to you know, reduce the intensity of the light, but it's daylight. So you get the true colour that Velasquez would have used to paint the Pope. It's exquisite. Isn't that amazing? And it also looks it looks like he's about to – he's looking at you. It, it, it looks like he's about to say something. Well, he, he said to Velasquez, apparently it's alleged, 
He said, uh, is it trop, Tropovera? I, I don't speak Italian. It's too true. It's too yeah, real. Yeah, it's too, it? too real. You captured me too truthfully, but he, he nonetheless accepted the painting. So, <laughs> I mean, oh, why wouldn't incredible. you? Of course, yeah, it's exactly. the, one it's... of the greatest masterpieces. In fact, yeah. I've got friends, uh, artists in the States, one bloke in particular, who would say he thinks it's the best portrait that's ever been painted by anybody. Look, uh, you know what? It's it's at the top. It's hard to argue with. Yeah, him, isn't yeah, it? yeah. What's your favourite portrait? If you had to look, say, it would probably be, if not that, and that's certainly at the top of my list as well. I mean, there's a number of Velasquez that I think are just sublime. Uh, but I do, I love the way Sargent painted. The way he put paint on canvas is again sublime, mm. and and just absolute virtuosity. Mm. In some ways, I don't think. Um, Velasquez was he was a virtuoso in a sense, but he didn't have that same freedom of he couldn't lay the paint on the canvas with quite the same uh, what, what's the word that they use um, bravura bravura oh, brushstrokes okay right you know just almost look what I can do you know who else can do that and and I don't think anybody has reached the dizzy heights that Sergeant reached. which one would you choose I've got two oh of his yeah. Um, that's a good question. There's so many. The uh, one that the one that tell me I, which ones you I'll like. tell you. Okay, mine are well. Number one, Lady Agnew of Loch. Oh yeah, that's which is in yes. the Scottish Museum. Yeah, National which was Scottish. out here not long ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually it was a few years ago now. Yeah. Um, and I think that's I don't know. There's something about that and her I would expression. Have to agree, actually, it's pretty amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also I love that Henry James, which was here in the Shakespeare to Winehouse. Right. I didn't see that. Oh, I was what? down there for the Darling Prize, having that being a finalist. And, yeah. But it was clo- it was at night and it was closed and I was going overseas uh, the day oh. or so later, so I didn't get a chance oh, to. Oh, you missed out on a great exhibition. And oh. also, you know, have, talking about the National Portrait Gallery, congratulations, you've got like six paintings in there, in their collection, which is pretty Impressive, I've got to say. Very honoured. Yeah, um, and it's where your work belongs, I think. Um, It's pretty amazing building as well, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's sensational. And it was great that they had um, in 2020. Was it 2020 or 2019? Pre-COVID, anyway. Which seems like a thousand years ago, doesn't it? (laughs) I know everything's pre or post. The celebration of the 20th anniversary of the opening of the gallery, where they commissioned 20 artists, and I was lucky enough to be one of them. Yeah. To paint or photograph whatever the field the artist was, 20 works of art, um, commission works, f- to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the National Portrait Gallery. And, and I painted uh, on that occasion Gail Kelly, former CEO of Westpac. Yes, that was a fantastic painting. Thank and you. actually I was talking to you earlier about um, painting women because um, – I sort of I think sometimes it's harder to paint women. How do you find it? You know, I think what is harder, and I don't disagree with that sentiment. What is harder is that they're generally more subtle. It, like the, the, you know, men often might have a very angular jaw or big bushy eyebrows or whatever. Their features tend to be more prominent and more angular and easier to latch onto. Yes. You know, you can do a caricature of a of a, a male politician more easily. I think than a, than perhaps a female politician. Well, that's interesting. I didn't actually think of that 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 that, that aspect of a of a yeah yeah. So when you when you're painting a, a woman's face, I mean, I, I like to paint both men and women. But what's nice about painting a woman is that subtlety, and I like to play up on that. And and particularly if you're painting a facial expression that's subtle and could reveal various moods and thoughts and facets of who that person is the more subtle the expression and therefore the more subtle the, the facial structure is, the easier it is to, to go down that path. This is an example. This was a little self-portrait I did just very quickly. Uh, it took me about three hours one night when I was kind of wanting to loosen up from some other work I'd been doing that I'd gotten, gotten stuck on. You know, the way you, you're going down a pathway and you, you can't see your way out. So I, I did this. And the good thing about a self-portrait is it, it doesn't matter how you paint yourself. You've only got yourself to, to please or, you know, not even please if you don't, uh, <laughs> if that's not required. And you're always available. And I had a mirror set up next to my, adjacent to my easel. 
and uh, and I also had some old photos that I was referring to because in this case I'm uh, looking down. When I was working on that other portrait for the one that's in the Darling Prize now, um, I took a whole lot of photos just of myself, just using a, a shutter release on the camera. And one of them that I obviously didn't use for that original painting, but I also thought had some merit, is the one I used for the basis for this. And I never got around to doing anything. So I had a bit of time and thought I'd experiment and just as a way of loosening myself up. Mm. And it's a bit like playing scales as a, you know, when you're playing piano, it helps you to um, see things, uh, I think, more uh, objectively and to loosen up. And so that's why I, I did it. Oh, it's a great idea. So, I've never thought of doing something like that, just yeah. as a, a like an exercise. Yeah, it's a great and idea. it's only a little, so it didn't take much effort and much time. And it looks like it took a lot of effort. Well, <laughs> it was mean, very concentrated like effort. <laughs> um, and in fact, I can, if you want, I can send you some pictures later. Of, I, I took a couple of photos just on my iPhone of the stage, as if it's yeah, of interest. I'd love to. I could put them in the on the website. Yeah, yeah. So, but what this does illustrate, I guess, is the the color choices that I used. So in in the dark area in the background particularly, the paint's very thin and it would have been a mixture of burnt sienna, French ultramarine as a base. And then with a little bit, you can see just in a couple of spots where there's a kind of greenish tinge, just a hint of viridian to slightly cool off in that direction, in a green direction, the background. Because I, I was contemplating a lot of flesh tone in this picture and I've got bare shoulders and my face and hand so there were a lot of pinks and so it just would resonate nicely if there was just a hint of green in the background so that was the rationale and then I also was able to use that same viridian in the flesh tones just in a few spots here and there particularly in the lighter areas of the flesh of the flesh because viridian I find others may have a different experience but I find that it's it's useful in light areas because it remains very clean and produces a beautiful, um, almost bluey green uh, flesh tone color. And, and I'm talking about mixing it in with other flesh tones. That's so not just a raw color in and of it by itself. Yeah. And you can see on the cheek here, I've used um, some combination of reds, but it's predominantly cadmium red because it has that orangey color that cheeks and ears can you see on the around the earlobe and and also on the tips of the fingers which tend to be kind of a pinker orangey pink color for someone with very pale skin like me um, and then on on the reverse side the shadow side as it leads into the shadow kind of cooled off and so I was I've probably exaggerated the colors for effect um because I wanted to keep the colours somewhat broken and let the eye complete the picture, the eye of the viewer, when they see it from a distance. And then I would have used um, more of the alizarin crimson, which is a bluer, cooler red, in areas like the lips and the, the shadow on my nose. In fact, all of the very darkest shadows, like this shadow where my finger, my, my hand's up against my cheek, and you want to get a very dark shadow, but you don't want it to be dead, using a warm colour like alizarin, probably with a bit of, um, uh, there was probably other things mixed in with it, it's not pure alizarin, but that was the predominating colour, uh, keeps it warm and alive, so it looks like there's blood flowing through that, it's not yes. dead flesh. Yeah, because shadows can be tricky, like they yeah. can, it can get sort of um, very uh, lifeless. Yeah. Very um, much so. Yeah, oh, that's and, so interesting. And likewise, in in you know these colours in here, um, it is actually a very dull, kind of warm, umbery grey. But but it was warm enough. To me, it's it's a bit like when someone says, "What's your favourite colour?" As a as an adult, my answer to that question is always, "I like this combination of colours." Because one colour doesn't exist in reality, you know, in nature by itself, it's always there with other colours mm. and in a painting likewise. So I always think of, you know, how is this going to look in reference to this part? And it's all a matter of everything relating to everything else. So when I'm painting the forehead, for example, which tends as a rule to be a bit yellower, if you think of the face as being in kind of 
panels of colour. In the case of a man's face, it tends to be bluer where you might have an afternoon shadow down here, um, warmer where you've got the cheeks and the nose through the middle and where the skin is thinner against the, the bones of the forehead it's a little yellower that's just there's less blood there yeah. and there's localized variations but that as a as a kind of a formula or rule of thumb that's the case and then as it goes around it cools off and under the chin tends to be cooler and so, so you, describing form are you thinking about color when you're describing yeah form? yeah and tone so t- tonal values and color are, are what i'm primarily thinking of so when i'm having the cheek which is very warm at the front, receding around the corner, or this this uh, shoulder, which I'm actually thinking I might even knock back. This is a work in progress. So <laughs> next time you see it, if you see it again, it may be a little bit different. But uh, it then as it goes back into the picture, it's a little bit like aerial perspective in a landscape. You know, the mountains in the distance tend to be cooler because that's the way we see in nature. Things that are closer to us tend to be warmer things that are further back, cooler. Yeah. So you can use that method to some extent in even a portrait because as the form curves around and away, uh, it tends to cool off, tends to grey off. So the colour is reduced by going greyer and and uh, and the edge likewise. Edges are another thing that are really important exactly. component. That so. is so true. And actually that's a good example of it actually because on the on the right-hand side you, you're losing – you know, that the, the shadows are going yeah. into the background, yeah. That was something that, that Graham taught me, uh, Graham Inson taught me, which was a very, very valuable lesson. And if you've got a still life set up, a still life really isn't that much different to a painting a head. It's a form that has a shape. It's lit by a certain light. He always used a single light source, and I tend to do that as well, although I like to use daylight. He used artificial light. And... Um, when you do that, you, you produce a series of, of, of shadows. And he would say to me and to his other students, don't peer into the shadows. He said, be humble. You know, when you're um, – this, in fact, might, might be an example of that, this Beethoven death mask. Yeah. So where the form of the edge of the clay mask met the wall that it was on, uh, there was obviously – a line, a delineation, but the tonal value of this shadow was only a hair's breadth lighter than the tonal value of the shadow it was casting. And he said, if you half close your eyes, can you see it? And a few people were silly enough to say yes. And he said, no, you can't. <laughs> he said, because what he said, you can, he said, this is glaringly obvious. This is not at all obvious. He said, this line here is, it was like, he said you're in the edge grading business. So you, you're grading. It's like you're creating a hierarchy of edges. And throughout the painting, I'm always conscious of that as well when I'm when I'm painting any kind of picture, that certain edges will be lost, others will be um, and, and therefore be softer. Others, they talk about lost and found edges. The found edges are ones which are, which are crisper. Uh, never too sharp, otherwise it just doesn't look real. But... Uh, this edge, for example, at the top here was much sharper because the light was catching the top of the cast and against that mid-tone background, it was a very sh- uh, clear edge. Yeah. So so edges, colour, value. Um, yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the trinity he described was <laughs> tonal values, uh, drawing or proportion, and colour. He didn't talk about edges as one of those three primary... Uh, components but but nonetheless it is i mean he spoke a lot about edges as well yeah 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 it's it's um so that's something that is you're always thinking about probably subconsciously i mean by now you it'd be automatic i'm sure to a certain degree i think to some degree that's true a lot of this does become subconscious because you've been doing it for quite a while but nonetheless i still try and remind myself when I'm painting I have examples of work little photographs of examples of work uh, of artists whose work I admire Um, Sargent uh, Velasquez Robert Hannaford I've got a little picture of of one of his in fact I bought a painting of of his some years ago and it's uh, it's I'm a I'm his biggest fan. Oh, his self-portraits are incredible as well I mean all his portraits are amazing but his self-portraits are just Stunning. Yeah, they're exquisite. Yeah, amazing. So having those those sorts of reference sources close by, 
um, just reminds you of the lessons that you should know, but they're very easy to forget. And so to be reminded of that um, and then to try and incorporate that into, particularly if I'm struggling, which is often the case. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Painting is really hard. Yeah. And I remember hearing an anecdote where Sargent said painting is really hard and I thought, thank God. If he found it hard, mere mortals like me, I don't feel too bad saying the same thing. So when you're embarking on a new work, it is a a bit of a struggle every time in a way. Different parts of it are. So um, the hardest part of a painting for me, this might sound crazy, is the background. I can paint the figure, the face, the hands, all that fairly, uh, I won't won't say easily because it's never easy, but fairly you know, I'm fairly confident that I can make it work. And even if I've got to scrape it off and do it a second or third time, I know I'll be able to get it. But the background I struggle with, even Hugh and Deb's background I painted several times over and just kept repainting it. Um, There was an anecdote attributed to Van Dyck, the great uh, European painter, who Sargent was seen as the, you know, the kind of, you know, carried the the torch of of, uh, Van Dyck. And Van Dyke was reputed to have had a conversation with one of his apprentices, one of his students, if you like, people who were working there with him, who I think in those days just painted backgrounds and, you know, filled in the gaps and washed out the brushes. And (laughs) so the story goes that this young, very brazen young man said to the master, dared to say, I think the others were probably in shock when they heard him say it, we're about to embark on this new painting. May I just paint the background? And and uh, Van Dyke said, no, you paint the figure, I will paint the background. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And again, I don't know whether his rationale was the same as what I feel myself today, but to me the background, because the background sets the stage for the mm. figure, and there's usually a lot more background than there is of a figure, even if it's a head and shoulders portrait or you know, three-quarter portrait. So if you don't get that right, um, the whole thing collapses. It's a bit like the bass player in the band. You don't notice it until he's playing a bum note and then it stands out like the proverbial. So That's interesting. So so when you're doing that, like I'm looking at Maggie now, for example, behind you. Yeah. And I, you know... Well, you know, the first painting I did of Maggie, sorry interrupting you there, is a classic case in point. I, In fact, she mentions this in her her um, video it, I was st- I hadn't long finished being an illustrator so I was I used a lot of acrylic paint as an illustrator because it dries quickly so I started painting Maggie in acrylic paint the, the first version um, just mapping out the figure and the background and, I, and and primarily the background and if you imagine a canvas about this size there's a, a lot of real estate to cover yeah and yeah. so I was painting it and it looked bad and I painted over that and it looked worse and I painted more, and everything I added to it made it look worse than it did previously. And I was getting, and it was the middle of summer, because at that stage I think the Archibald was probably due in uh, probably February or something. Um, so it was hot as Hades. I lived in Kenthurst. It was a hot summer day, and and I was so frustrated with this painting. And I grabbed the canvas, I took it outside, I turned the hose on, and because it was acrylic paint, so water-based yeah. paint, but it had set like it was dry, and I got the hose, and I think it was mainly that I was just wanting to let out my stress and anger <laughs> at the frustration I was feeling with this painting. So I turned the nozzle on, you know, to shoot water out of this thing at high pressure, and <laughs> after a while, I thought, "Hang on, Paul, maybe you should just back off here." But by which stage, Wait a most second. of Can the. Can I pa- ask you a question? Is the figure painted? No, um, no, it was it was very crudely mapped out. Okay. Again, in acrylic paint, just kind of here's the position of the figure, but it was the background that I was trying to to establish because I thought once I get that, I'll be able to relax because I find it so hard. Oh, that's <laughs> so interesting. Okay, so sorry, go back to so the hose. So I, I then I, so I I was hosing this thing off, and by the time I realised what I was doing consciously, I thought I really should back off. And I turned the hose off and let this thing dry in the sun, which only took five minutes in that the heat of summer. I came back out and looked at it, and what emerged, and it was a total serendipity, what emerged 
in that it wasn't orchestrated by me or designed. It was just total good luck. Was this beautiful patina where the upper layers had mostly been burnt, washed off by this high high pressure water hose. The underlayers that were more tenacious had clung to the canvas, but been kind of burnished by the effect of the paint of, of the water. Yeah. And it produced this beautiful patina, and it was like a soft green grey. It was gorgeous. Yes, yes. And, and is that that's what's yeah, in the painting? Yeah, it's a beautiful background. I noticed it. Yeah. yeah, and that's predominantly what is there. I did tweak it a little bit in in areas where she cast a gentle shadow against the background, and so I did play around with it just a little bit essentially that's the finished background that's such an interesting story you know I think um I I remember reading somewhere once that Lucian Freud made his sitters sit while he was doing the background as well oh really (laughs) because it it, well he could get away with that I'm sure (laughs) they're probably sick of it by 80 hours but that just goes to show you how important the background is to the figure yeah as you say as you say as Van Dyke said (laughs) as Van Dyke said Allegedly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I want to talk about some very interesting work you've done, which is quite different to these commission portraits. It is a commission and they are commissions, but they're religious paintings. Yeah. And, like, I couldn't believe that one of your, you know, it must be one of your largest commissions when you were um, asked to paint 32 pictures for the interior of the Domus Australia Chapel in Rome. Mm. And, of course... Your fantastic portrait of uh, Mary and Jesus called Our Lady of the Southern Cross sits right here in Sydney in um, St Mary's Cathedral. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. And I'm, I was thinking they must you must be thinking about the purpose for which they're being painted, which, yeah. is, which is sort of different from, say, you know, Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Finesse, yeah, you know. Yeah, totally. Uh, so what, what sort of – how do you see that the purpose is of that work? Well – for a start, I'm, I'm aware that it's going to be in a, a sacred space and it's going to be there for a long, long time, long after I'm, you know, been and gone. It'll be around. And therefore I want to – and I take it very seriously. Um, I mean, it took me a long time to paint them. It, t- it was like a marathon, 32 paintings. I think they thought I'd get them done in a year, but it ended up taking probably about six years to complete them. Wow. Well, some of them have got multiple figures in them. Yeah, you know, that's, like that's scenes, right. Biblical scenes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And and you know, I, my back, my I'm Catholic by background, and so I have a, a Christian faith, and and so I was also aware of that, and trying to you know do honour to these people who, uh, for the most part, it seemed to me were you know um, certainly within the Catholic tradition, heroes of, of that. You know, Mary MacKillop and the work she did in in uh, you know the squalid environments that she was based in in South Australia. I actually felt mm. sorry for people like that, for, for her in particular wearing these because I, as I was doing my background research, I, I found out what the fabric was made of and it was it was alpaca, which was considered to be a cheap material back though, in those days. But it was effectively wool. So <sighs> that would have been hot as Hades and they're wearing multiple layers of, of that habit and uh, veils and you know all of that. Yes. So and I had all my models dress up in in those uh, kinds of um, apparel as well for these for these paintings. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, amazing work. You must have. Did you enjoy doing those? I did. I mean, I was glad when it was over because it was that's a, a marathon. marathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can but, imagine. But I did. I really did enjoy it, and and I got it. It was really a blessing because I got it at a time when. The global financial crisis had begun, and work was for you know someone who paints portraits, which is a you know a luxury item, I guess. Mm. It's not a, it's not like food and medicine; it's not a requirement for life. Um, and a lot of my friends in the states were really struggling at that stage to to make ends meet with uh, with work, and I and I was blessed with this abundance of, uh, of of work, so it was it was really good, very good timing. Now, I just wanted to ask you a few questions about your process when you're painting and in particular when you're looking at something for a long time and you just can't look at it objectively anymore. Yeah. What do you do in order to, you know, see it with fresh eyes? Mm. So what I – you, in fact, Graham here is another – he was a wealth of wisdom for, for my painting uh, journey. Graham used to say – Take lots of take frequent breaks from painting, 
but short breaks. So if you're painting, which the models also appreciate. So if, you, um, if you're painting, say, for 25 minutes, you would then take five minutes off. And he'd say, now, when you're taking that break, don't stand there sipping your tea looking at your painting because the functional purpose for that break is for you to get away from it. And even five minutes is, is really profoundly effective in, in uh, terms of doing this. That's interesting. And he'd say, if, if you can't resist the temptation, then turn it to face the wall. Um, I'd just go out and, and do something else. I, I've got enough discipline that I don't need to look at the painting. I've been staring at it for long enough. So, um, and then if you come back to it with a fresh eye, even after five minutes, you'll instantly see things that jump out at you as being problematic that you can address and you and you ought to address that you won't have seen in a month of Sundays if you've just been staring at it because you start to glaze over, you just don't see things. And the classic example he gave to us as his students was he said, okay, you're all familiar with the map of Australia. And of course we, we were. And he said, and he showed up, he showed us a map, just a line drawing of the outline. And he said, that looks pretty balanced, doesn't it? And we thought, yeah, it looks, it looks balanced. And then he showed us a, a line drawing of a mirror image of the map of Australia. And he said, now take a look at this one. What do you think? And we, we were just gobsmacked because it, it looks totally unbalanced. Western Australia, which is a big state, looks tiny yes. compared to this gigantic elongated eastern seaboard. But you just don't see it until it's turned around. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And so what that made me think is, okay, set up a mirror in the studio. So I have a mirror set up. It's not here at the moment. So that when I'm working, this is my easel here and the mirror's back over there and I'm working away. I'm always walking back and forth from the easel. And oftentimes what I'll do is I'll walk back and as I'm walking back, I'll look in the mirror just to give myself, just just to give me a a fresh perspective, a different angle, literally a different angle. Yeah. And, and, and also it's a more distant perspective because effectively the distance between the easel and the mirror and then me, so me, the mirror and the painting, because that's the reflection I'm looking at in the mirror, is double that distance. So it's, it's getting me even further away from the painting. Yes. So I'm able to see things that I can't see up close and, and also in reverse, that will kind of shake me into a new perspective and hopefully I'll see things. And, and what happens is if you come in after a break and I come and I look at the canvas and there'll be things I'll look at, I'll see straight away and I think, good grief, how did I miss that? <laughs> but I did miss it. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. And so, when you're working in the studio, do you, uh, do you have music playing or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, I, I do. And often um, either music playing or usually something by Bob Dylan or some, you know, blast from the past, or Ed Sheeran or, you know, yeah. whoever I'm uh, enjoying at that moment. Yeah. Uh, or talking books. I often listen to a lot of uh, uh, just videos on YouTube where someone is, you know, audible or whatever it might be, just spoken books. I usually like to have something going. And it's a big house, actually, so yeah, yeah. I have well, the luxury of being able to do that. I'm talking about the, the house. Mm. You have got an amazing studio that you are finishing building at the moment. I'm absolutely blown away by. Um, I've taken some videos, so I'm going to get that up on YouTube at some point um, and on social media. What a dream come true for any artist. Um, the hugest windows I've ever seen in my life. Can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, it's um, well, it's been a, a work in progress for, for too many years to, to, to count, but it's coming to its final stages of completion and the, and the outside is virtually complete. I need to finish some of the painting, but um, other than that, it's um, just a matter of finishing the inside. So it came about um, when I moved here with my family some years ago. One of the reasons for, for moving to an acreage property was that there, were, there was plenty of space. and uh, This is five acres, and so I was able to therefore orientate a building uh, which wasn't smack up against a boundary wall and, and had to be the way the boundary was. So I had the luxury of rotating, in this case, the building such that the window would face almost due south. I say almost because it's actually offset about 13 or 14 degrees in order to avoid the late afternoon summer sun. 
and in turn receive the morning summer sun. And I'm not really a morning person by nature, so I, I don't mind what's happening in the morning. <laughs> but in the afternoon, when I'm, that's kind of peak time for me, so I don't want to have the sun shining in. And the late afternoon summer sun is very intense. So I, I had the luxury of being able to do that to orientate the building. Well, how high are those windows? Because I've um, to ask They're you almost that. nine metres high. So it's probably stunning. the equivalent of the roof of a two-storey building. Yeah, right. And, and, the, and the purpose of that? Um, the main reason, well, there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, I wanted to get a very even light and I wanted to have a big window where I could sculpt the light so I could later on put curtains and things up in various positions to either have a light coming from high up only and no light from lower down or vice versa or a wider light just just to sculpt the light for for any particular purpose but the other reason was that I do uh, workshops and I like to teach and you know I'm always getting asked if I would do workshops so and I've done them in the past in in studios where the light wasn't really great and you're always working against less than ideal conditions and by having the window so high that the, the building that the, the room the studio room itself is about 12 or 13 meters wide roughly and about 15 meters long so it's a big space and having the window that high means that the light um, goes all the way across that room so that the whole room is usable and people on the far side of the room will also get a really good daylight yes yeah, very even light. Yeah. Oh, it's just fabulous. It's been an absolute pleasure being in your studio, well, one of your studios, and yeah. seeing your new studio, yeah. and you've been so generous with your knowledge. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul as much as I did. I'll keep you updated on social media as soon as my video of Paul goes online. I'm taking a break for a few weeks, but we'll be back in 2023 with a great lineup of artists for you. In the meantime, I'll be posting on social media. I'm mainly on Instagram and Facebook. I'm not posting on Twitter these days. And TikTok, well, let's just say I still post from time to time. And I know this is probably a generational thing, but it does feel like the Wild West out there. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. I had people dress up in vestments and things I, I I got to know very well the uh, sacristan at St Mary's Cathedral and he I would often go in there and borrow vestments and dress somebody up as a, as a cardinal you know for Cardinal Newman's portrait for instance oh. or Pope John Paul who I also painted and in fact when I was in Rome this is a, a kind of a, a crazy thing but I guess it's because I, I'm just so pedantic about getting the detail um, of reference correct I bought a, um, the, I think they call it a zucchetta, the, the skull cap that the Pope wears. And I've actually bought, I've got one right here I can show you. <laughs> a replica, and, obviously. No, no, it's a real one. No. Yeah. No, I mean, it didn't belong to the Pope, but it was made by the, the, uh, the tailors that make all his vestments. And I thought when I went there, they're not going to allow me to buy one. I explained what it was for. I mean, it wasn't just for, you know, dress-ups or anything. It was for, for a... Um, legitimate purpose but I didn't think that they would do that they were happy to sell it to me